Well, in my last episode, we talked about why people don't go to church anymore, or at least why fewer people go to church these days, uh, or if they do, why they go to church less frequently. Uh, And my purpose in talking about that was not to say, oh, how terrible, but rather to say, hey, this is our new normal, right? So what are we going to do now? Should we try to get people to start going to church again? Do we need to implement new and attractive ministries and programs? Or do we need to learn a new way of being the people of God in a world in which we have far less influence than we used to? That was episode 65, titled, Why Don't People Go to Church Anymore? In this episode, what I want to do is I want to look at a period in history called pre-Christendom. Uh, and I'll explain what that means shortly. But I think that this will be helpful because the early church, which is that period of pre-Christendom, the early church lived in a society in which they had very little influence, kind of like us today. And yet they grew. So the question is, what was their secret? And is there anything that we can learn and perhaps implement in our world today? Uh, now, I also want to let you know, uh, before we get into uh, the, the main part of our uh, discussion today, that my book, Beyond Thingification, Helping Your Church Engage in God's Mission, uh, is available on Amazon right now, and the audiobook will be available on Audible very soon. In fact, uh, it might even be available by the time that you hear this. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we talk about in this episode is stuff uh, that I unpack even further in uh, in my book. Um, and so a great companion piece to, to what we're going to be talking about today. Well, I'm so glad that you're here. I'm Marcus Watson, and this is episode 66 of Spiritual Life and Leadership. Hey everyone, uh, I am glad to be back with all of you again. I'm here with, uh, again, my good friend Cody Vermillion. Hi Cody, how you doing? Good, how you doing? Pretty good, pretty good. Um, last time, Cody, we had a great conversation about why people don't go to church anymore, or mm-hmm. far fewer, uh, and today uh, I'm excited to have another conversation with you. Um, but before we do, last time I asked you about what you did, uh, today why don't you just give us a little bit about your family and such. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I probably should have mentioned him last time. <laughs> my wife <laughs> my wife listened to the episode. She's like, oh, hmm, didn't mention your family, huh? <laughs> so, That's yeah, funny. thanks for giving me that opportunity this yeah. time. Uh, we all get I, a second chance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am married, um, been married for almost 10 years now. We got two kids. We're living in Escondido. And we've been actually in San Diego County for about 10 years as well. My son's five, my daughter's two. And and I actually, in addition to what I shared last week about, you know, being one of the co-founders of Uncommon Good, uh-huh. um, that grants me the flexibility to be a stay-at-home dad as well. So, I, I spend most of every day with, with my kids, which is actually yeah. kind of a rare thing for yeah. a, a dad, I think. And it's been a really cool experience for me to see my kids growing in ways that I wasn't seeing when I was working a full-time, you know, in-office job. So, that's been really a huge blessing. That's awesome. And uh, 
And sometimes there are frustrations, like when your <laughs> kindergarten changes schedules on you and yeah, so forth. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, man. Tell, tell, Tra- go ahead and share your frustration. It's okay. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, <laughs> my son's kindergarten, it, it, like, it, it's a half-day thing every day, which is annoying in itself. And then, of course, every once in a while, they'll say, oh, actually, come at these hours instead of these hours. It's like, man, yeah. people have lives. You know, we need some consistency here. Yeah, but you know, overall, <laughs> I, uh, it's I, pretty chill. <laughs> I, I was, uh, I was thinking. I, I guess we could say that these are first world problems, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, but you know, when my kids get off schedule, it's it's a it's a problem for everyone, the whole oh, world. Okay. So you know, for, yeah, right? Hey. It's a global global <laughs> problem. <laughs> Funny. Uh, well, good. Well, I'm uh, glad that we get to have this conversation today. Um, we're going to talk about pre-Christendom today. And uh, so let me just kind of get into uh, our topic. Um, and I want to start uh, just by kind of summarizing what Christendom is. Um, so Christendom uh, is basically that part of the world or that time in history in which Christianity is sort of the dominant power of the culture, or at least a significant, a significantly dominant power in the culture. There's a book that came out, uh, gosh, probably like 20 years ago now, called Missional Church, A Vision for the Sending of the Church in North America. Uh, Daryl Guder edited that book, and uh, he says this uh, about Christendom. He says that Christendom is defined as the, quote, centuries in which uh, in which Western civilization considered itself formally and officially Christian. Right, formally and officially Christian, and um, and we, you know, when you look back on Europe, especially, but also, uh, you know, the United States uh, in the first couple hundred years of of our con- of this country, right, you see that there was there's a lot of Christianity sort of infused into the culture. Uh, my uh, my friend Todd Bolsinger, who wrote Canoeing the Mountains, talks about a friend of his uh, who said. Uh, who he said, you know, when I began my ministry in a church in Alabama, I never worried about church growth or worship attendance or evangelism. Back then, if a man didn't come to church on Sunday, his boss asked him about it at work on Monday. <laughs> right? That is a totally different world than the one we live in Very today. Very different. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever had anybody tell you that, oh, my ba- boss asked me why I wasn't at church yesterday? No, I've never no. had a boss ask me why you weren't at church. <laughs> and you worked at the, church. <laughs> except for the ones that are... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I... Uh, uh, I'm going to draw on a few different books from for some of the content here. One is, well, two of them are by a guy named Alan Kreider. And uh, one of the books that he wrote is called The Change of Conversion and the Origin of Christendom. And he says that in Christendom, everyone is a Christian. Now, uh, if we're looking at our world today or even, you know, the world of the last couple hundred years, uh, we wouldn't say that everyone was a Christian. But if you go a little bit further back, right, into, um, you know, Europe when uh, the Catholic Church or even the Protestant Church, you know, kind of was the dominant power in, in Europe at that time, everyone was considered a Christian, right? You were born and you got baptized and there was no, there's, there was no need to evangelize people in 
their own culture because everyone was just considered a Christian. That's so that's Christendom. And in Christendom, right, in a Christendom culture, in the Christendom world, Christianity has just a lot of power. That's kind of uh, one of the key concepts of Christendom. Uh, do you have any thoughts or responses to any of that, Cody? Yeah, I mean, uh, it, in all honesty, like, I hadn't really thought about this until, you know, you and I were working together and you were talking about this. And mm. it was such a, uh, it was like an, my mind unlocking moment of like, oh, yeah. We have been living in this era where not only in in American Christianity, you know, the American culture is a culture that's typically thought of as a Christian culture. Yeah. But that's that's after, you know, thousands. Well, I'm not good at history. (laughs) I'm not good. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not good at I'm not good at math or history, but You know, we've got at least hundreds of years of of just kind of the church being the center of the culture, yeah. and it, it makes total sense um, why we arrived where we are now. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, so arguments about like prayer in school or putting the Ten Commandments up in public places, or even you know, I don't know, uh, putting nativity scenes out on public squares. These are all very much Christendom kinds of debates, mm-hmm. right? Yes. These yes. are not the kinds of debates that happened in pre-Christendom, <clears throat> which we'll talk a little bit more about. They're also not really the kinds of debates, I think, going forward into what we might call post-Christendom. Th- th- those debates are going to happen less and less and less. They're the kinds of debates that happen in this transitionary period between Christendom and post-Christendom. Um, anyway, um, so, so Christendom, the church is sort of the dominant power of the culture. Uh, that, of course, was not always the case. Uh, back before what we would call Christendom, in the era of pre-Christendom, during the first 300 years or so after Jesus, uh, the church had very little power uh, in the culture, right? And uh, the culture at the time, of course, was dominated by the Roman Empire. And yet what's really amazing is that somehow... Uh, in the fourth century, the church ended up at the very center of power in Western society. Now, we're not going to talk about what that was. I will say that it has something to do with the conversion of Constantine, uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine in 312 AD. Uh, I want to talk about that in the next episode. So uh, before you and I record that, I'll send you a bunch of notes about that. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, awesome. But but I want to talk about what was life like for the church before Christendom took hold, right? Mm-hmm. Before Christianity became sort of the dominant um, philosophy and the dominant worldview and the dominant power of Western culture. Because um, I think there are some things that we can learn uh, in our uh, in in our world today, in our post-Christendom world. So, um, so uh, what I want to do, uh, let me stop and see if you have any thoughts before we go on into the next part. Yeah, the um, the thing that's ringing in my head is th- this idea of power, mm-hmm. and um, how um, I'm going to totally butcher describing it, and I should have a reference, but <laughs> <laughs> we can add it later. Sorry, right. but uh, uh, the idea of right-handed power and left-handed power, mm. whereas right-handed power often is about having power over, mm. um, and it's a you know the the kind of you know. The, 
uh, almost like the governmental power, the the the, the authoritarian power yeah, yeah, yeah. is the right-handed power, and the and the left-handed power is is a power of 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 influence, and it's driven mm. by love, and it's driven by um, uh, you know, coming alongside people, really. And, yeah. And it's so interesting that uh, a movement that started with very much left-handed power, yeah, in the way that Jesus approached leadership and influence, mm-hmm. um, and even uh, just not using his power over people, but using his power to to be countercultural. Uh, how that movement started that way, and and in just a few hundred years, turned to right handed power, yeah. where you see things like later on the Spanish Inquisition and <laughs> and, yeah. the, and the um uh, what are they called the the medieval uh, uh-huh. crusades the crusades yeah right right. Um, so it's just very interesting yeah. to see how power shifted. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually uh, interesting. I never actually heard um those expressions left-handed and right-handed power. Um I need to read whatever book that comes from. <laughs> yeah, I I'll, I should uh, try to remember where it, it yeah. came from and But that's <laughs> really good. That. <laughs> um yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. What happened in some ways uh, in a lot of ways is that Christianity went from having left-handed power right? A power rooted in love and compassion and the way of Jesus to right-handed power, which, uh, you know, do what we tell you to do or else, right? Um, so anyway, so we'll talk about the right-handed power next time. Um, but in this episode, uh, what we're going to see is a lot of left-handed power, a lot of power that uh, that comes from a position of humility and uh, compassion and generosity. Um, that's, that's really what characterized the, the pre-Christendom church. So, um, what I want to do is I want to kind of offer four characteristics of the pre-Christendom church. Uh, I'm going to give them all at once, and then we'll kind of go back through and, uh, unpack them one at a time. All right. So here are the four characteristics that I want to mention. There are, of course, far more than just these four, but these are the four that I want to emphasize or talk about in this episode. So the four, these four characteristics of the pre-Christendom church are one, that the church had no political or social or cultural power. Two, uh, the church grew by leaps and bounds anyway. Uh, three, the church had a missionary identity. And then four, the church focused on developing a habitus in the followers of Jesus. What the heck is a habitus? We'll talk about that. We'll get to that. Um, but the first, so the first uh, characteristic here is uh, that the church had no political or social or cultural power. And that's probably not a surprise, right? During the first 300 years of Christianity, I mean, it was a time when at best Christians were ridiculed, by society, or at the worst times, they were persecuted, you know, arrested, tortured, thrown to the wild animals in the Colosseum, etc. And uh, and we we read about um, that that period of time when when the church was marginalized, um, persecuted. Um, I've got a quote here from Cyprian. He said that um, the Christians, uh, talking about early Christians, should overcome evil with good and exercise, quote, a divine-like clemency, loving even their their enemies and praying for the salvation of their persecutors, right? Because that was their reality. They lived in a world in which it was dangerous to be a Christian. 
Uh, sometimes, and sometimes they were truly considered to be a dangerous cult. Sometimes they were considered to be just sort of this funny little weird, odd uh, cult. Uh, but they were never at the center of power. Mm-hmm. Uh, thoughts? Yeah, it's just, it's funny. Like, uh, they're either like this wacky cult that we have to be worried about. And that's probably what, you know, probably what the religious folks of the day were were thinking. And then, or they're this just weird little group of people that keeps um, strangely growing, which is probably what the... <laughs> <laughs> the uh the uh the the empire of the time thought and it's just kind of yeah. again funny where we come from and where we are now yeah 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 um right so um so no power right however again number two characteristic number two the church grew by leaps and bounds anyway uh one estimate has that the church during those first three centuries of Christianity grew by 40% per decade, right? That's huge. That's like, if you start with, what is that? That's if you have a thousand people, the next decade, you've got 1400, then you've got 2000, then you've got 4,000. I don't know, something like that. See, you're uh, good at math. I'm, oh, well, I'm just going to trust I thought about numbers. it a little bit in advance. I'm, I'm not good at math, <laughs> but I, I didn't, I didn't calculate it out. Like do use my calculator, but I was like, what would that be? Right. So, but, but it's a lot. Right. And then of course, now actually uh, the early church, we know that there were in Jerusalem, thousands of Christians, you know, early, early on. And so if they're growing by 40% per decade, there were tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands um, of Christians all over the Roman Empire. Um, another uh, statistic I came across uh, says, or an estimate is that by the time Constantine converted to Christianity in 312 AD, uh, that somewhere between 8 and 12% of the population in the Roman Empire was Christian. So that's actually a lot, right? Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean they had power, but there were a lot of them. And probably part of the reason they were persecuted was because there may have been some fear of their growth <laughs> you know who are these we got to keep them un- under control and then uh, another interesting thing uh, is that the early church uh, the pre-christendom church had no mission program or strategy for evangelism right there's no there are no documents there's no historical whatever data or uh, ancient you know writings that say anything about here's here's our strategy here's how we're going to go about telling people uh, about Jesus or getting people to become Christians, which is very different from, I think, the world today, the world that yeah. I grew up in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> How about you? Oh yeah, I mean, and, and it's this is kind of the space where we're we're living is there's books and books and books and, and, and methods and uh, trainings and conferences and all this stuff on how to grow your church that we've experienced in the past. I say we yeah. as, as the uncommon good team mm. um, and probably a lot of you listening mm-hmm. that you've experienced. Um, and uh, how many of them are, are, you know, these stellar things that have worked treat, you know, for, right. <laughs> for everybody right. like, um, right. And probably not many. What we're finding is that as we respond to the people that we've, come across as we respond to the culture that we find ourselves in, that's where we start to see the most, um, I'm not going to even say growth. I'm going to say, I'm going to say impact changed Mm -hmm. lives, you know, uh, people coming to, uh, understand something 
for the first time or coming to be a part of a spiritual community for the first time. Um, yeah. It, it really is more of this like sort of, uh, I, I like the imagery of like a fungal growth, growth. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> you know, it just kind of, it spreads in, in that natural way. And, and I, I don't think that, it's not that strategy is a bad thing. Sure. It's just that it, it really requires more of an organic approach than having some sort of prescripted strategy. Yeah. And I think that's more and more true in this post-Christendom world that we live mm-hmm. in today than in the Christendom world that you and I really kind of both came out of. Um, I think about, you know, when I was in college, I was involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, and they have a very, I don't know what it is really now, that was 20 years ago or more, 25 years ago, um, but, it, you know, they have a, they had an, or had or have still, you know, an effective strategy for evangelism, something called the Four Spiritual Laws, and, uh, you know, it worked. Uh, it was a great way to have conversations about Jesus. It was a great way to have mass, get masses of people <laughs> involved, you know, college students and having these events on, uh, you know, in Daytona beach or in whatever downtown of whatever city and just send kids out college students out and tell them to ask people if they've ever heard of the four spiritual laws. And then some of those people that they have conversations with are bound to, you know, respond favorably anyway. It was so there, yeah, there's nothing wrong with strategy. It's just interesting that they didn't have one. Right. And yet they continued to grow. Right. Um, what they did have, uh, and this is the third, the third uh, characteristic, is that the church had a mission, a missionary identity, right? In other words, they they understood themselves to be on mission with God. Uh, their purpose, uh, their existence, was for the sake of continuing the ministry of Jesus, right? The ministry of restoring uh, shalom in the world. Uh, got a couple of interesting. Uh, quotes here from uh, from some early church fathers, we might call them. Uh, one is from Cyprian in 256 AD. He said, uh, this is great. He said, beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words, but in deeds. Uh, we exhibit our wisdom not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things, but we live them, right? They didn't have a, uh, a strategy of Here's the th- here are the things that we should say to people in order to get them to believe the things we want them to believe, but here's how we should live in a world, in a way that attracts people to this Jesus and, and entices them perhaps to live that way too. I, I'm just, I just want to read part of that again, right? So not in words, we're philosophers, not in words, but in deeds, right? We exhibit our wisdom, not by our dress, but by truth. We know virtues uh, by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We don't, we don't go around saying, look how good we are. We go around actually living good lives, right? We don't boast about how loving and compassionate we are. We actually, we just go around being loving and compassionate. Um, we do not speak great things, but we live them. Anyway, man, that's so good, huh? It's so good. And it, and it, it's really, it speaks to how intuitive it is to be a follower of Jesus. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. like it just makes sense. Like uh, a couple of things. One, obviously, if you are living the life that you're 
talking about. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not talking about being religious. I'm talking about the, the, the extending love and, and loving your enemies and things like that, which I think we'll talk about a little bit more. Um, if you're living that, it's, it's, it's going to be a lot more compelling than if you're just talking about it. That's right. And what's interesting about the early church is that they, you know, we, we read in Acts about them living this sort of life together. Right. And, and part of that also is that just as, for example, this is something that we talk about a lot with the Table Network that mm. um, is a, a broader network that, that Uncommon Good is a part of. Um, people will extend to others what they are excited about and yeah. passionate about. Just as I'm going to share with you, Marcus, when you know I see something new about the next Star Wars movie, <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> I'm be like, Marcus, have you seen the new one? Right, um, right. I'm excited about that. These early <laughs> <Me too>. Christians, <laughs> yeah, they had just experienced something incredible, um, and they continued to experience it. Not only uh, you know from the, from the ministry of Jesus, Jesus, but they continued to experience it through the disciples and their just extending that out to people like, did yeah. you know about this? Look, yeah. look, did you hear about this? Oh, look at how this has changed my life. And then people see, oh yeah, it has changed your life. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, that that uh, leads me to another um, quote by a guy named Justin Martyr. Um, he talks about how the way people live their lives was what caused people to uh, to want to be to, to, to know more about this Jesus and Christianity, right? He said, um, he said, many who were once on your side, meaning uh, non-Christian, those who were not, not Christians, have turned from the ways of violence and tyranny overcome by observing the consistent lives of their Christian neighbors, right? By observing the consistent lives of their Christian na- neighbors or noting the strange patience of their injured acquaintances, right? These Christians who have the strange patience, even in the midst of injury, or ex- I like this one, or experiencing the way they did business with them, mm-hmm. right? Just in the way that Christians did business and I don't know exactly what it was like uh, in the Roman Empire to do business, but something about they, the way they did business, maybe with greater integrity, maybe with greater concern for the person they're doing business with rather than just trying to you know, get as much out of them as possible. Whatever it was, some, something about the way they did business was something that drew people towards this Jesus, right? Yeah, it's it speaks to a faith that permeated their whole life. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and uh, uh, I got a, so Alan Kreider, I got a quote from Alan Kreider who um, wrote not only the the first book I mentioned, The Change of Conversion and the Origin of Christendom, he wrote another book titled um, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, which is kind of an interesting title, subtitle, uh, The Improbable Growth of Christianity in the Roman Empire. And uh, he talks about how it was, really just ordinary Christians who caused the gospel to be spread throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, This is what he says. He says, it was anonymous Christians, not the officially constituted leaders of the Christian communities, who were primarily responsible for Christianity's spread. What caused ordinary Christians to get involved in this? Often it was work. 
Christians followed their business opportunities or the imperatives of their jobs by moving from uh, from by moving from their home areas to new areas as merchants, artisans, doctors, prisoners, slaves, and by the third century, soldiers. Right. So just the very as they as they did their ordinary things, doing whatever kind of work they did as they moved around the Roman Empire. That's how Christianity spread. Um, which also reminds me of yours and my time with Flourish San Diego. <laughs> yeah, I was <laughs> right? thinking thinking yeah. the same thing. Well, what, what are you thinking? Well, yeah, this it just reminds me of a lot of what we talked about in Flourish. And mm-hmm. um, so a couple of things. One, I mean, at the beginning of that quote, it says uh, it was anonymous Christians, ordinary mm-hmm. Christians that yeah. that uh, that was spreading the gospel, not the constituted official leaders of yeah. the Christian communities. Yeah. And um, so much in our Christian culture today, it's it's kind of like there's an air of let's let the professionals do the work. Let's yeah. let the missionaries go be missionaries. Let's let the uh, pastors do the preaching. Let's let the pastors lead the ministries. And then your job as somebody who comes to this uh, building that we call church is yeah. to invite people here, yeah, and that's it. That's right. But but we're seeing in this quote, um, it was often people's work that 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 was the mode by which people mm-hmm. were came to understand. So it's it's just simply that these early believers, their daily lives, they were bringing Jesus along in their daily lives. It was as they were going, they were preaching the gospel. They were right. discipling others, even through work. Yeah. Um, it's a little sticky to do yeah. that today in our society, but. Yeah. Well, yes and no. I mean, um, <clears throat> you know, there may be ways in which you can't talk openly about your faith, but you can certainly live out your faith uh, in the way that you do your work, right? Which I think is what Kreider in this quote is getting at. In the way that they did their work, they were living out the 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 lifestyle of Jesus in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. And they're very ordinary, the, the very ordinary things they did. And and you make an important point. Uh right. I think there was less of a distinction in in the pre-Christendom church between clergy and laity. And that came out more during the Christendom era. And we'll probably talk about that in the next episode. Yeah. And I and real quick, I love that list at the end there too. Mm-hmm. It was merchants, artisans, Doctors, prisoners, <laughs> yeah, yeah, slaves, yeah, uh, as soldiers, and uh-huh. what you don't see in that is, you know, head pastors, worship yeah. leaders. Yep. Not that those things are bad, you know, yeah. but there's a place for them, right? <laughs> yeah, but they're <laughs> yeah. they're these are ordinary people, right? Doing ordinary things, and and uh, also just a reminder: this falls under the third characteristic, which is that the church had a missionary identity. Every Christian. Ha, uh, understood that their primary identity was well. I guess we could say first and foremost a child of God, you know, uh, and a follower of Jesus. But then, as on mission with God, every Christian understood that they were on mission with God. Being a Christian didn't mean we go to a worship service on Sunday. It meant that I am I am living out the lifestyle of Jesus in the world every day of my life, um, mm-hmm. and they understood that. I love that. 
Yeah. So, so uh, that kind of leads us then to the fourth characteristic, um, which kind of answers the question, how did they, how, how did Christians learn to live that way? How did they become the kind of people who lived that way? And so the fourth characteristic of the pre-Christendom church is that the church focused on developing a habitus in the followers of Jesus. Uh, what the heck is a habitus? Uh, well, it's, uh, I guess the word is maybe a Latin version of the word habit, <laughs> but that kind of captures, right? The word habit kind of captures uh, what the church tried to develop in people to instill in them certain habits that um, help them to live the way Jesus lived. Um, uh, the word habitus, I get that from, again, from Alan Kreider's book, uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. Here's how he describes this word. He says that habitus is uh, corporeal knowledge, right? Body knowledge, uh, a, quote, system of dispositions that we carry in our bodies, uh, right? They try to help people uh, instill certain ways of living that that it was just natural for their bodies, um, he says that, uh, uh, Kreider, he says, this is knowledge that is not taught, but inhaled. It is learning that we acquire without being aware that we are learning, right? And that's, so it's it's a spiritual formation uh, is uh-huh. perhaps another way that we can talk about it. But um, I think I think he might say that the difference between spiritual formation, not the difference, but maybe the distinction and habitus is that uh, sometimes spiritual formation can be thought of as more just sort of like inner thinking and ways of you know seeing the world and and making Jesus uh, a priority, which of course it it is. But habitus just kind of focuses on the on the habitual part of that, developing habits and uh, and physical. I don't know. I'm trying to think about how to say this, like physical responses, so that when you when you do something dishonest, right, your body reacts. <laughs> like your body yeah. wants to be truthful. Your body wants to be mm-hmm. um, compassionate. Your body wants to be just and generous. Right. Uh, that's kind of how I understand yeah. habitus. Uh, does that? I don't know what kind. Of, yeah. What well, I, I mean, not to get too mystical or anything like that, but I think that there is an intrinsic link between our spiritual life and our physical life. I mean, mm-hmm. when when that spirit spiritual formation is occurring, in some ways, it's almost like it permeates every yeah. cell of our body. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah. So I love this this imagery. I love that imagery in that quote of like. It's not taught, but inhaled. It yeah. is learning that we acquire without being aware that we are learning. It is a system of dispositions that we carry in our bodies. It's yeah. just, it becomes a part of who you are um, spiritually, uh, mentally, and even physically. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, and that that's really helpful to me to think about what do I want to develop in me, not just the right ways of thinking, but the right ways of feeling and the right ways of acting and responding with my body, in, you know, in the world. Um, uh, so for the early Christians, um, their focus was more on how they lived, right, than on what they said. Uh, here's another quote from Kreider. He says that it was not primarily what the Christians said that carried weight with outsiders. It was what they did and embodied that was both disconcerting and converting. <laughs> I like that, right? <laughs> it disconcerted people. Why are they acting like that, right? Why, why are they 
not doing, living, acting in the way that most people do. And, and so it was disconcerting, but it was also what eventually converted people towards this way of Jesus. One of the really interesting things for me is that in the early church, you could not just go to church, right? You couldn't show up to a church service. Um, you couldn't go and have the Lord's Supper, uh, right? The the Eucharist communion, it was only for Christians. Um, now, uh, I'm, I'm getting to a point here with all this. Um, I would not personally say that that's a rule that has to be kept today by any means. And I think part of the reason was because they were a persecuted minority. And there are places in the world today where Christians are uh, persecuted and they meet in secret and is really just Christians who can receive communion because they're the only ones who are at these worship gatherings, you know, in people's homes. Um, but here's how a person could eventually attend a worship service and receive communion. It was after going through a two-year period of catechesis. Uh, catechesis basically just means a period of teaching. And uh, and only then, uh, right, only then could they finally enter, enter into the community's worship and receive uh, the Lord's Supper. That sounds really harsh, right? Yeah. But the whole point was, they weren't interested in in just getting people in the doors of the church. They weren't interested. They they didn't. I mean, this is so counterintuitive to how we do things today. They didn't care about how do we get as many people to go to church as possible. What they cared about is is helping people become the kinds of people that God created them to be, right? And to live uh -huh. the kinds of lives that we were created to live. Another another quote from Kreider. He says, during the early centuries, Christians met and worshipped in private buildings, not public ones. Right? They met in houses, not in basilicas or temples. The worship of the Christians was secret, closed to outsiders. Christian worship was for Christians, not for curious connoisseurs of cult or even for tentative inquirers. Right? Christian worship was for Christians. The way you were able to enter that was by going through this period of catechesis. And the purpose was to, to develop character and virtuous living. And so at the end of this two-year period, and it could be longer uh, depending on how things went, but they would be examined uh, by the church, uh, probably by some folks, you know, selected by the congregation, but they would be examined. But the interesting thing is that they, they were not examined on what did they believe. They were examined on how did they live. Uh, right. So Kreider says this, he says, they did not ask about the candidates' opinions and attitudes, for example, what they thought about poor people. They did, however, want to know how the candidates treated poor people, right? And if they didn't treat poor people the way Jesus treated poor people, then they would say, well, you're probably not ready to enter into worship with the community yet, right? Let's continue this process of catechesis and then when you love poor people the way Jesus loved poor people, then come on, worship with us. I don't know. What do you think about that? That's different, huh? Yeah, it's very different. And it's, um, man, when you first told me about this, I just, I had a lot of feelings about it. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did too. I get it. Uh, yeah. Like, so, uh, well, on the one hand, I do get like, 
this was a very different time where where Christians totally. were being persecuted and like if you let in an outsider it's very possible that you know people yeah. would have been killed yeah um if it was a you know s- sort of if they had ill intent mm-hmm. um which it, it makes me think of where we are in our society as as especially american christian christianity um first let me say the Amer- American Christians do not mm-hmm. face persecution. Yep. Say it with me now. American <laughs> Christians do not do face not face persecution. persecution. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Even though um, there are certain camps that would uh, insist that we do, because yeah. we don't have to deal it's with not. this sort of thing in our yeah. society. Yeah. And for us as uncommon good, um, this would just flat out not work because our whole model is is about. Um, welcoming people to belong, regardless of what they believe, and are uh, with no agenda of trying to get them to believe, yeah. having the ultimate hope, of course, that they would come to know Jesus just yeah. by rubbing shoulders with people who love Jesus, right? right. <laughs> um, <clears throat> by seeing how we live, by seeing how we love, uh, by being a part of the community uh, uh, so much that they, that it just kind of it naturally happens and we rely on God to move in that. We yeah. obviously we, we talk about what we believe, but it's not something that we are trying to make happen. Yeah. And so having a model like this wouldn't, wouldn't really that's <laughs> work, right. work for us, Yeah, but I see where it came from. And I see why it existed. Yeah, that's right. So this is not a model for how to do church in the 21st century, but this is how they did church in the first and second and third centuries because of their unique context, right? So that's important. Um, But I think what we can take from it is the emphasis they placed on developing people's habitus, right? Developing people's, Mm -hmm. their spiritual formation, right? Becoming the kind of people who um, lived like Jesus. I think one of the drawbacks of Christendom is that there was no emphasis on that because in Christendom, everyone's a Christian, right? There was no need to develop people's habits because there was no need to convert anyone because everyone, I mean, it just wasn't a thing. Um, I think, uh, and, and so today, right, there's so much concern uh, among the kinds of churches that I I've been involved with, like mainline kinds of pres, uh, Presbyterian in my case churches, but you know, other churches that have been around for a long time, how do we get people to show up? How do we get people to be here? And then they get here and we're like, let's just do whatever we can to keep them here um, mm-hmm. so that we can maintain, like um, maintain the institution, right? Keep paying the bills. And, uh, um, but such little concern for developing people uh, to into the kind of people who, who live the way Jesus lived um, and did the kinds of things, or, or at least did their ordinary things, their work, their family life, their neighborhood life, their whatever, in the ways that Jesus did. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps even steps beyond their comfort zone to um, to do the kinds of things that Jesus did. But there is so little emphasis on that kind of spiritual transformation. Mm-hmm. I think that's why the church grew, right, uh, in the early, in, in pre-Christendom, is because people were actually living the way Jesus did and the way he, the way he called them to. And um, others were compelled by that. And they yeah. said, I want, I want to know more. I want to see, right. I want to live like that too. Like, how do I, um, 
and and you're right like our, in 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 our so many churches that I've experienced um it's it's sort of like a model of of capture and keep Mm, yeah, and we mm-hmm. we like to think that we are trying to help people develop their you know their spirituality, but really I think we're just trying to keep people in a cycle of constant learning, mm-hmm. um, so that they stay in church. Yeah, and the the uh, the the idea of of <clears throat> even though lots of churches say this, um, they 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 say it with their words, but they don't say it with their practices. The idea of of the church gathering and then scattering mm-hmm. to live out their habitus, you know, to yeah. live out their lives, yeah. um, um, and and disciple people as they're going about their lives. Yeah. We don't really empower people as church mm. leaders to do that. Yeah. We empower people to invite people to come to church so that we right. can keep them in a constant right, cycle right. of learning. Yep. And if you're in a constant cycle of learning, then you start to feel like, well, I'm just, oh, I still need to, I need to learn more. I need to learn more. And then you don't actually, you never feel equipped enough to go out and do it. Yes. Yeah. But that's, the early questions, they just went out and did it. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's a great insight. Um, and I think part of that is because we don't really have a missionary identity. We don't think of ourselves, I say Christians in general, as people on mission with God. Um, if we did, and if that's if those are the kinds of things we were taught and trained for, and 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 our and we developed habits of missionariness. I don't know. That's not a word, <laughs> right? <laughs> but but if we developed habits that that allowed us to live out our missionary identity as people on mission with God to bring healing and wholeness to the world, right? Then we would, I mean, that would be, that would change the world. I think the, the pre-Christendom church had a, a clear understanding of our calling is to usher in the kingdom of God, right? It was mm-hmm. in some ways very eschatological, right? Um, and, uh, and we don't have that like in a lot of, and in some circles, our job isn't to usher in the kingdom of God. It's just to wait for Jesus to come and take us, you know, rapture us out of, out of here. And I, I think that misses the point. <laughs> I agree, I agree. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So I'll tell you what, why don't we stop there? Um, let me just kind of uh, summarize those four characteristics again. So the four characteristics of the pre-Christendom church were that one, the church had no political or social or cultural power. Two, the church grew by leaps and bounds anyway. Three, the church had a missionary identity. And four, the church focused on developing a habitus in the followers of Jesus. So uh, next time I want to talk about what happened. Like that that sounds so amazing to me, like that kind of a um, faith and that kind of a faith community and and uh, faith uh, movement, you know, um, And then something happened and uh, started in some ways with a conversion of Constantine. But next time I want to talk with you, uh, Cody, about Christendom and what that looked like and how that's affected our world today and and the way we think about ministry today and uh, some of the ways I think we, uh, we fall short because of that. So anyway, Cody, thank you. Thank you. I'm yeah, loving I, this. I love yeah. the history lesson too. I'm looking forward to more. Oh, good, good. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll see you in a couple of weeks then. All right. Thanks. 
Well, I loved learning from Cody the concept of right-handed power and left-handed power and how it applies to the church. Right-handed power, if you'll recall, is the use of force, while left-handed power is influence based on respect and relationship, but it doesn't use force. And in a lot of ways, uh, the pre-Christendom church was a church of left-handed power. Right, The power they had was based on relationship and earned trust. The Christendom church, however, was based on right-handed power, domination, and force. And you'll see that uh, in the next episode when we talk more about Christendom. Uh, I think part of the reason that church leadership is so challenging today is because you know, we have gotten used to having right-handed power, right? Power based on domination and force. And now we don't have that anymore, right? We don't have that kind of power in our culture anymore. And so we are having to learn what it's like to lead from a place of left-handed power, right? Relationship and earned trust. That's all we've got these days. Uh, Cody told me after we had finished recording that these concepts of power come from a book titled The Parables of the Kingdom by Robert Farrar Capone. So I, uh, I invite you to check that out and I'll include uh, a link to that in the show notes. Uh, and before we finish, I just want to invite you to download a free resource titled Seven Practices of a Flourishing Church. You can find that on my website, www.marcuswatson.com. And that's Marcus with a K, M-A-R-K-U-S. W-A-T-S-O-N. A really great resource uh, and a great way of helping leaders, I think, move from a posture of right-handed power toward one of left-handed power, right? A posture of letting God lead us into his mission in ways that perhaps we wouldn't have anticipated. I also have to mention it one last time. Don't forget to pick up my book, Beyond Thingification, on Amazon.com. And if you prefer the audiobook, that'll be available on uh, on uh, Audible uh, real soon, too. I'll include a uh, link in the show notes to, uh, to the book as well. Well, thanks so much for being here. I'm so glad to have been with you again. And I will see you next time here on Spiritual Life and Leadership.